Remember back what feels like a million years ago when you'd have to either go to a movie theater or wait five months for it to come out on Redbox, and then another couple months before it'd be streaming on Netflix or Prime? That all may be about to change. Movie studio Warner Brothers is releasing its new blockbuster Wonder Woman 1984 in theaters and on the streaming service HBO Max. Add that to the list of things you don't have to leave your house for anymore. Time now, as always, for our moment of historical context, facts and figures. As we've learned over the last 30 episodes, the stock market, COVID, and today's unemployment are not nearly as linked as you might think. The number of people filing for unemployment for the first time went up for the first time in a month, though not much, up to 742,000. Pre-COVID, that number would have been record-setting. But now, there are 28 weeks worse than this last one. It's like the four-minute mile of our economic time. A once notable feat, only newsworthy now by how common it is compared to yesteryear. On to COVID, numbers continue to soar at astronomical rates around the world and in the U.S. as cold weather forces people inside, away from fresh air. As the daily new caseload has tripled in the last five weeks, up to 170,000 people testing positive each day, and the death rate sure to follow suit, local and state legislators are implementing stricter lockdown policies around the country. Congress, though, is on a break and seems to be confusing their oath of office with a promise to do nothing, which they are executing to perfection. Things to look forward to are the local policies having a minimal effect because they aren't coordinated with their neighbors, as well as expiring unemployment benefits for people impacted by COVID. While I obviously hold national lawmakers in incredibly low esteem, maybe they are putting all their eggs in the vaccine basket and holding their breath as a third company has declared its drug's effectiveness to be over 90%. Oh, and the stock market did nothing this last week, remaining near all-time highs. With all this doom and gloom, let's move on to our surprisingly encouraging interview. A couple of quick reminders, starting with cliche podcast supporter stuff. Like and subscribe so you never miss out on our Tuesday morning releases, but more importantly, share with your friends who have small businesses. It's really hard for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs to find friends who genuinely understand their struggles, but a friend who shares a podcast is a great second option. Reminder number two, stick around to the end of the episode, even past the credits, for a quick bonus round of three or four questions about our guest Amy's favorite and least favorite parts of entrepreneurship. Lastly, and most importantly, reminder number three, Black Fridays this week, which officially kicks off holiday shopping season. Please, please, please shop small and shop local. Yes, Amazon is easy, but spending a little extra time searching and being a little more intentional about who you vote for with your dollars can have huge implications in your community. Buying local helps small businesses literally stay in business, shapes the culture of your community, and creates jobs, all of which makes your living situation better. Speaking of buying awesome products from small businesses, interview time. My guest today is Amy Zittleman, CEO and co-founder of Zoom Foods, a leading purveyor of tahini and tahini products in the American market. Zoom has been named the best tahini according to industry experts by New York Magazine's The Strategist 
and has been featured in outlets like the New York Times, Food and Wine, and Bon Appetit. In 2018, Amy was named a Forbes 30 Under 30 in the food and beverage category, and she is the author of The Tahini Table, Go Beyond Hummus with 100 Recipes for Every Meal. She also promised to share some of that magic that might get Zoom to meet original revenue expectations for 2020, something listeners of this show know is a rarity. So let's get to it. Amy, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So as you and I were just talking about a little bit in our little pre-show interview here, as we were chatting, uh, I feel like you are in this sort of elite class because you're going to at least come close to meeting your revenue projections for 2020, which doesn't sound crazy, but when you put it in the context of COVID, and that you're in the food space, which has been so disrupted, that is just unbelievable. So we're gonna we're gonna start things off uh, with with kind of a, a Tarantino esque end of the end of the the story, which is you're you're surviving uh, and you're meeting expectations, and then we're gonna go back to the beginning here, and you are gonna tell us about Zoom Foods and how it came to be. So let's start with. What is Zoom Foods? What, what's your what's your uh, what's your your key? Um, what's your bestseller? Sure. So our bestseller is tahini. I'm not sure if you're familiar with tahini, or likely our listeners are familiar with tahini, but many people aren't. Uh, tahini, for those not familiar, is an ingredient made from 100% roasted and pressed sesame seeds. Uh, sum sum, in fact, means sesame. So we are a business based off of tahini and tahini products. Our second uh, product is a chocolate sweet tahini spread, uh, our take on Nutella, but with just three ingredients, tahini, powdered sugar, and cocoa powder, no nuts, no dairy, no palm oil. And our third product is a complementary ingredient to tahini called silan or a date syrup, um, which we import all from Israel. Got it. And yes, I'm definitely familiar with tahini because I grew up with some kind of uh, hippie parents who wanted to put tahini on things like pancakes uh, in the you know early '90s, basically. So super I love hippie. I love tahini. What's yeah, it? super hippie. And can I assume then you're from the West Coast? I sure am. There you go. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. Um, Okay, so you have those. Uh, so tahini is basically your 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 bread and butter. And how did you end up starting a tahini company? Was that something that you grew up with that you were really familiar with, or was it something that kind of you stumbled upon later on? So tahini was something that we were familiar with, but not super enamored with growing up. Um, the tahini available in the United States hasn't been stellar. Um, and we became familiar with this high quality tahini and inspired to start a business because our middle sister, Jackie, ended up in Israel after graduating high school. So I'm the youngest of three girls, Shelby, Jackie, and me, Amy. Uh, the joke is Shelby had a business degree. Jackie married a tahini expert and I needed a job. But Jackie, uh. <laughs> 
Jackie moved to Israel, ended up dating Omri, who she's now married to, who's been in the tahini industry in Israel at this point for almost 20 years. Um, and Omri introduced us to the high quality tahini that was becoming popular in Israel back in the early 2010s. So uh, this tahini is pressed from sesame seeds from Ethiopia. They're called white humera sesame. And it really elevated the application of tahini even in Israeli cuisine. In Israel, you can find tahini, even like what your mom was doing, as a topping on pancakes or frozen yogurt or an ingredient in baked goods. And when we surveyed the market here in the States, we found most people were only using tahini to make hummus. And it really didn't taste good. They never used it for anything else. And they likely threw it out after six months. So we were inspired to make tahini a more familiar ingredient in the American market and to advocate for high quality tahini, its versatility and health benefits. And what is it that makes it higher quality than its competitors? It's the, it's the source of the seeds. So similar to coffee or wine, the region where sesame seeds grow produces a different flavor profile, consistency, uh, that ratio of oil to the rest of the sesame meat produces a different um, you know, consistency in the product itself, a flavor profile as well. So, um, so it's, it's definitely the source of the seed and also the, excuse me, the manufacturing processes. Okay. And you obviously speak eloquently and uh, knowledgeably about this now. How did you, what was your, your familiarity with the product before? And did you have a, any sort of background in food? No, not at all. So I was a senior in college when Shelby, my oldest sister, was spending a year in Israel after completing her bachelor's, which was in entrepreneurial management. Both of our parents are entrepreneurs too. So entrepreneurship is really what stimulated this business not necessarily food itself. Um, but I was familiar with tahini because of its application in hummus and in my few times in Israel growing up, you know, a topping on falafel. I then after graduating college lived in Israel for a year and was an immerse, immersed in the culture and the food there and was really inspired by the flavor of tahini. I love to use tahini in different ways than even Israelis like to use it. I used to take, um, Cheerios and slather it in tahini and honey and freeze it and kind of eat it like a energy bar. Mm -hmm. And when I brought these to some of my Israeli friends, they're like, that's not what you use tahini for. And I would say, why not? You know? Um, and so over the years, I've definitely better understood tahini. But um, the second joke to the, the trio of sisters is that Shelby's the brains, Jackie's the heart, and I'm the voice. So I studied communication in college. What I love is connecting with people. I love talking and describing things. And so I kind of naturally fell into the advocate and the voice of the company and for the product itself. Well, it obviously shows. So what was the inception of the company like in terms of you being a senior in college, your sisters abroad? And did you and also two part question, as always, uh, did you have a familial connection to Israel at all beforehand? Before Jackie, no. I mean, we were raised in a in a Jewish home, um, a Zionistic home. And so we spent a lot of time in Israel, uh, okay. but we didn't have immediate family in Israel. I mean, through the dispersion of our family, especially around World War II, many distant cousins ended up in Israel, but not my immediate family at all. It was Jackie who, um, if growing up, you would assume she was the least likely to end up in Israel ended up going to Israel, falling in love with it, falling in love with an Israeli that really gave us this stronger familial connection to Israel. But 
The inception was twofold. One, it was the initial market research, which was when Shelby called me and said, I need you to do some market research on tahini. And my answer was, what is market research? She said, <laughs> I'm a senior in college, right? <laughs> I'm a senior in college and I have, you know, more fun things to do. She said, just go to the grocery store and buy every, you know, tahini that you can find find on the shelves. And what I found was that even the grocery clerks didn't know what tahini was. And you could only find tahini on the bottom shelf of the international aisle with dust on the lids. And so, whereas most people would see that as something super scary. Like, why would you start a business for something that has, I guess, no real gusto in this market? I think entrepreneurs see these scary things as, as opportunities. And so we saw this and said, oh, wow, why don't we make good tahini more familiar and more accepted in the American market? Um, the second thing was actually uh, when I was living in Israel and Shelby was now back in the States. We had the opportunity to talk to, we were continuing this market research. I mean, um, from the idea of 2011 until our first import in 2013, we spent over a year and a half just kind of combing the market, understanding these different revenue um, you know, potential. We went to Ethiopia together for the first time. And one of the meetings that we had was with a family friend that has a relatively actually very large private label company. And they made a salad dressing with tahini in it. And Shelby ran the numbers and she's like, wow, if we just provided tahini for this one salad dressing, we could have a business here now. So she immediately went and started filling out the paperwork, and, you know, kind of the inception of Sum Foods was born. We still don't sell to that account um, and large accounts like that are not in our bandwidth uh, still to this day. But um, but that was actually the impetus for actually, you know, becoming incorporated. It was this like big idea of, oh, if we just sold to this one private label company, we have a real business here. And did you, were you able to ever at, at any point sell to that private label company? Still no. It's still a good no. family okay. friend too, but no, our pricing doesn't match up and um, we still haven't closed that deal, but I try every year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess that makes sense. And that's kind of the uh, the downside of dealing with really high quality ingredients is you're not always able to compete on a price level. Absolutely. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I know that one firsthand. <laughs> uh, OK, so you're you're basically your, your sister married, um, married a guy from from Israel and that kind of gave you some some roots. Have you found yourself traveling to Israel much because it, it sounds like just uh, to confirm here, you're sourcing the the um, the sesame seeds from Ethiopia, you, which are then shipped to Israel for the product to be produced, and then you are then importing it into the U.S. Yep, you um, got it. Having started a somewhat similar uh, company just in the natural food space, thinking that hey, we're going to do something simple with high quality ingredients and. Um, and we produce, uh, especially in the beginning, we were producing locally. That was a, a huge burden in the beginning, anyway. Like just scaling any sort of business, moving from outside of uh, kit, you know, at home kitchen production onto an industrial level. I can't imagine what it was like, yeah, to do so on an inner, just to have uh, multiple countries thousands of miles away that you are sourcing and then producing to and you have a whole supply chain issue. What was that like, especially being 21, 22 years old and, and starting that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so 
Omri is actually now in the sesame trade out of Ethiopia. So Sum Foods is not actually exporting or purchasing the raw sesame seeds. Our relationship is with the manufacturer in Israel who purchases from Omri. Uh, Jackie, living in Israel, manages our relationship with the manufacturers that we work with. And so that alleviates the burden on Shelby or myself needing to travel back to Israel, you know, every so often. Now, we'd love to go to Israel as often as possible, um, but having a business and now having kids, we, we don't get to be there as often as we'd like. Jackie also um, just personally comes back to the States every summer for six to eight weeks with her children so that we can spend an adequate amount of time together. So that has really alleviated that burden of us in the States needing to have our, you know, direct roots in Ethiopia and Israel because Omri is in Ethiopia so often and Jackie lives in Israel. Um, it's actually, you know, besides the fact that we were young women and it's very hard to, in fact, impossible to negotiate with Israeli men that own these manufacturing facilities. Um, so for instance, for our first order, we had no terms. We had to pay all cash up front for 20,000 pounds of tahini. So it was just like, it was just a mess to begin with. But besides that, it was actually a benefit because Zoom got to focus on sales and marketing, which when you're building a brand, you can probably relate to some of the biggest distractions for um, company owners is the production side of it when they really should be focusing on sales and marketing. So by producing our products in Israel, it actually alleviated um, some of the distraction of resources, time and money that we would have spent, you know, either doing the production ourselves here, um, and we could free that up to focus on sales and marketing. In the interim, before we started producing our chocolate in Israel, we did have a co-packer here in the States in Massachusetts. So we were bringing in our buckets from Israel. We were selling those buckets also to restaurants, but then also shipping them up to Massachusetts where they were being produced into our chocolate spread and shipped back to us. So the, the cost and the time was really detrimental to the business at the end. And we were only able to start filling our chocolate in Israel just last year, I believe, um, after a long time trying to figure out the right, the right way to do that. So I, I know it's not, you're not just paying lip service to the idea of the importance of sales and marketing, but I do love how, how glass half full you, you make that seem, oh, it's actually a great thing. No problems that it's produced, you know, 8,000 miles away or whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, our, uh, our 12 week, you know, 12 week lead pro time is not a problem at all. <laughs> when it's held up with the FDA and we're, you know, onto our last bucket, uh, I think that is the benefit, or I think it's a um, an aspect of entrepreneurship that you have to have. It's always glass half full. You know, if you focus on what's empty, I think we'd all throw in the towel um, many, many months or years ago. Oh my gosh, Amy, just spot on. Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. We're actually just doing all team SWAT. Um, you know, whatever activities, um, and the thing that really, you know. My perception of it is every weakness is an opportunity. You know what I mean? Right. It's like the same exact things is in that weakness, you know, category that can be in the opportunity category. It's like, okay, you don't do that well. Well, that just means it's an opportunity to do it better and think about how much better the business will be when we improve on these weaknesses. So that's just my philosophy in life, which is why focus on the negative. If you know, you can always make right. it better. And for our listeners who aren't super familiar with Michael Porter's SWOT analysis, uh, can can you uh, sure? So that it, real quick, what is that? What does it stand for? It's, 
stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I think it's a great way to um, establish where your business is and what you're doing well and um, the aspects of the business that are you're not doing well and ultimately can improve on. The thing to keep in mind is that strengths and weaknesses are internal characteristics. It's things that you can control whereas opportunities and threats are external. It's things that um, you might be dependent on the outside or maybe can't even control. Say coronavirus is now a threat that I think uh, an, an international pandemic is now a threat that every business will have to put on their SWOT analysis, which yes. we did not <laughs> De- do in 2019. Definitely, definitely. Uh, w- one of my favorite things real quick to kind of... Uh, it's kind of a cousin of the SWOT analysis is the, is the pre-mortem, which kind of basically just takes the the threats and the weaknesses uh, combines the two and, and is a looking a, it looking into a hypothetical one year down the road or five years, it doesn't really matter, but why does our, why did our business fail? The, mm. the pre-mortem. So it's, it's starting from a point of we failed why? Why did why did we why did we fail? What did, what did we not see coming? What did we not adjust to? Was it cash flow that killed us? Was it a little, you know, putting all of our eggs in one basket or two baskets? Did we not diversify enough, et cetera? Oh, I want to try that. That sounds super morbid. <laughs> Perfect yes. for Halloween. Perfect, exactly. So just as we kind of wrap up our pre-COVID segment here, we're just gonna do a couple of quick numbers kind of to sort of quantify where things were headed in uh, late 2019, early 2020, starting with revenue expectations. Yeah. So our revenue expectation for that, that we set as our goal for 2020 was 2.75. It was following a year of 2019, which was a 2.1 goal, which unfortunately was flat from 2018. So a little bit of context to Zoom and, and, uh, what was happening to us as we um, stepped into COVID was actually um, Thanksgiving of 2018. So now almost two years ago, we had to participate in a very devastating recall. Um, and it impacted our business all throughout the first half of 2019 tremendously. Um, and so we had, whereas we expected a huge loss to not be able to reach um, back to where we were at in 2018, um, we ended up making up for over half a million dollars of lost customers um, throughout 2019 to get us back to that 2.1. But we still put on a pretty aggressive goal, in my opinion, um, to get to 2.75 for 2020. Yeah. I mean, a 30% growth year over year is no small feat, especially when you're into seven figures already. And one quick thing about the recall, having been there, I know how you use the word devastating also how stressful it can be because you've put so much time and effort into acquiring these customers. And for a lot of customers, no matter how much they like you, it's a one and done. It's exactly oh, what happened. Recall? Sorry. We're, we're literally never going to carry you again. So it wasn't even in terms of carrying. And, and that's one of the things that I think differentiates Zoom from a lot of other small food businesses are our multi-channel sales approach. So we mostly lost actually some of our food service accounts, people that were buying our product in bulk and using it in their restaurants or using it in um, meal kits or something like that. And so um, you're right though, we can have a great relationship with our buyer and they can be advocating for us, 
But if the quality assurance team, you know, quality assurance team deems that Zoom is not fit as a as a vendor, then you kind of have no hope. But um, but you know what? We really stuck to our values during that time: transparency, um, you know, just just being honest, being true to ourselves, only controlling what we can control. And we accepted those losses and we understood. And I've, you know, maintained that it is my goal one day to get those types of accounts back. So, um, but it was, it was very devastating, very stressful. It actually made the onset of COVID much easier to manage because it was nothing compared to the recall, like nothing. Yeah, no because at least the whole world was going through it. Exactly. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't our fault for the recall, too. Let me just say, you know, that was a oh. um, uh, I could, you know, defend ourselves all day. Um, but exactly. Everybody was going through it. It didn't just have to be us. We weren't the only ones needing to make a decision in a moment. And, and a recall, as you experience, is just a quite a harrowing uh, feat. But we just went through our mock recall for 2020 and it was much easier than when we had to do it in 2018. It's, it's funny, uh, kind of building on the the essence of, of the glass half full is that when we went through ours, one of my thoughts was, well, at least we're still small because if yes. we were a lot bigger, then the losses would be a lot bigger and the future customers that we could go after would be more limited because we would have already lost a larger percentage of our, our potential. A hundred percent. Bigger, bigger kids, bigger problems, bigger business, bigger problems. I mean, we say the same thing. Luckily it happened to us when we were only five years old and not 10 years old. I mean, the amount that you need to literally recall, right. When you're bigger or more widely distributed um, would be much more challenging than our very small distribution network uh, that we were at and still have, I mean, through yeah. from 2018. Okay. Just a, a couple really quick questions. How many employees do you have? We have 10, including me and my sisters. Okay. Um, and what are your, uh, what are the different channels that you serve served in, we'll say February of 2019? So we served our food service channel, which is split between um, distributors direct to restaurants and also small manufacturers. So it's really like who is buying our product in bulk, larger sizes. Um, we served a retail channel, uh, primarily through one distributor focused on the mid-Atlantic and Northeast region. So our primary brick and mortar distribution is between DC and you know Southern Connecticut. And then, um, and we served an e-commerce channel through our website, zoomfoods.com and also on Amazon. And is that a relatively even split or what's the leader there? Back in February, it was about 65% food service, um, 35% consumer, which 80% of that was actually coming from online as opposed to in stores. So our retail distribution still to this day is our smallest sales channel. Wow. I feel like that food service stat makes your projection to still meet your early, your your uh, beginning of the year projections that much more impressive but we're definitely going to get to that in our in our next segment yeah. uh, I I feel comfortable moving on from the from the pre-covid segment but before we do of course as always it is time for our 
unsponsor of the show. And this is basically a, an unpaid shout out to a small business that's uh, an awesome business run by awesome people producing an awesome product who just deserves a random shout out. They don't even know it's coming. So, Amy, who is today's show not brought to us by? So this show is not brought to us by Base Butter. Um, if anybody out there is admiring my glowing skin, uh, it's thanks to Base Butter, Chanel and Nicole, uh, two Philly women that have started an amazing skincare company. I met them several years ago, I think 2017, at Fearless Con, which was a great conference for women um, in entrepreneurship and just professional uh, capacity in general. And I've just really been inspired by their journey and by their success. Um, and I'm a huge fan of their product. Do you have a favorite product? They only have one. Oh, okay, great. Just so, this. Yep. So go to basebutter.com and buy their one product. Basebutter.com and buy their one product when you can. Um, they're sold out often and they're really working hard to ramp up their operations. Um, but I'm a subscriber. So if you really want to try one, I have an extra jar in my drawer. Okay, perfect. People could just reach out to you directly. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm uh, starting a black market of base butter uh, <laughs> on the side. A, a side a side hustle. Side hustle. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to our mid-COVID segment where we are going to talk about basically the, the sting of COVID on your business and that begins in March. So you have a large percentage, about two thirds of your business came comes fr came from. We'll get to the if it still comes from um, from food service, which basically means all types of food, essentially served to you. So restaurants, cafes, etc. People who are buying uh, tahini in gigantic quantities. So they're they're not buying a, a six ounce little container. They're buying a 40 pound bucket, 40 five pound, gallon yeah. paint pail. Got it. Yes. Yes. The paint pail. The one where like your whole body, when you're carrying it, your whole body like bends over to the side while you try to counterbalance. Farmer's walks. Yes. It's uh, much better <laughs> to hold two at once than one, um, but it, it's, it's good for misbalance as well. We do a lot of CrossFit in our warehouse. Yes. Yes. A lot of accidental <laughs> CrossFit. Right. Um, so yeah, so let's go ahead and start with, you know, in March and, and you're in New York, right? We're in Philadelphia, Philadelphia. so okay. on the East coast. Yep. Yes. Um, and in March, I'll never forget, but it was on maybe the tw Thursday, the 12th, where I, um, announced to our team, like, Hey, just so you know, the office is still open. Um, you know, carry on as usual. We'll, we'll see what comes in over the weekend. And on Monday, probably by 12 p.m., I said the office is closing at 5 p.m. today. Don't expect to come back in until we have the next, you know, direction. So it was a very quick turnaround. That Monday too, we were also getting calls from our distributors, um, food service distributors, saying we need to cancel these orders. Um, and we very, you know, we understood and said, okay, we'll cancel these orders. And our food service. Um, revenue stream just dried up in a second. I mean, orders were canceled. People that were on um, recurring monthly orders, obviously, weren't. we didn't know when we were going to hear from them again. And it was really scary. Um, but at the same time, people kept ordering on our website. 
Um, we shut it down for a couple days. And after observing some other food businesses, especially some of the small markets that we work with here in Philadelphia, stay open and really start to ramp up their, you know, COVID protocols to keep people fed, um, I realized, wait, tahini's a food, right? We provide a food to people, we actually need to be open. So I called my director of logistics and my warehouse coordinator. And I said, to the ability that you feel comfortable, we need to start going in. So before I let them in, uh, that Thursday, so we shut down the office on Monday. And that Thursday, I went in to fill orders, we had a couple of retail distributors that placed orders that I wanted to get out. And also, some orders from our website that I just wanted to get out. And um, almost overnight, really, by the end of that weekend, our Amazon sales had actually exploded. And so whereas, you know, we used to spend most of our time just kind of moving pallets of buckets off of our racks onto a truck, now we were really, um, now we were really focused on doing small parcel direct to consumer orders more than we ever had before. So between myself, my director of logistics and my warehouse coordinator, we were in about 20 hours a week. So it's maybe 60 hours total of man hours. And all we were doing was packing two pack of 11 ounce, two pack of 11 ounce, trying to get as many cartons available into where into Amazon's warehouse so that our inventory could stay in stock. Because to be honest, um, people were looking for non-perishable food for healthy, comforting food. And we had really laid that foundation for people to consider tahini as an ingredient to bring into their pantry. And just like that, it hit like it was unbelievable. So it was actually our direct to consumer, especially on Amazon sales that almost in fact did more than make up for our lost restaurant sales that carried us through really through June. So I, I want to come back to that, but I just want to highlight one thing real quick. And that is you are a, even though it's two, you are a multi-million dollar business. You are the CEO and you are filling orders. You are going into the warehouse and you are, and you just gave me a look like, of course, I just, I, I just want to highlight that only because I feel like peop, there there's a perception sometimes when we get inbound customer inquiries because of our our website looks professional. Shout out to my sister, Christina, for building it. So they assume that we're like, oh, you have a professional website. I'm going to talk to you like you're Amazon. And it's like, no, we're still filling the orders oftentimes from our own office here. You are doing the exact same thing, even though you're, you know, again, a multi-million dollar business. So I just want to highlight that real quick. There's no follow-up question to that. No, and I get it. It was actually one of the feelings that was almost nostalgic for me. Like when I was back in the warehouse 20 hours, you know, however, however much time I could allot there. Now, granted, I had a husband at home that was working. We have a two-year-old son, you know, that we were splitting time with. And so uh, if I could have been in more, I would have been in more. But it did remind me of the time. I mean, we only had a warehouse coordinator because the director of logistics that we had hired a couple years before was past his capacity to be able to manage the warehouse. And we only hired that director of logistics because I was past my capacity to do the sales right. and, you know, and all the business development that I was doing um, to have the time to be in the warehouse as much as we needed. And so as hopefully most businesses do you kind of need to do everything yourself until you, you know, reach that threshold where you can't do it or your 
you know, letting out um, other important responsibilities, and then you start hiring. So no, I used to do everything from, um, you know, sales and, and market research in Philadelphia to delivering the buckets in New York, even just for a restaurant that won four buckets at a time, I'd drive there first thing on a Monday morning and be back in Philly, packing website orders that same afternoon. So it was almost a nostalgic feeling for me because I had been removed from that, from like touching of the product and, and knowing what it feels like, you know, to be moving the product, um, for a couple years now. So, right. um, it was, it was comforting to know that I could control it and could, um, and, and could protect it almost. Right. And I, I feel like it's almost comfortable, especially in the uncertain, in the peak uncertainty of those times to be able to do something that is tangible and, 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 active, like, you know, literally with your hands, moving product, shipping product, uh, engaging in that, in that, uh, fulfillment process. Yeah. And I wonder if we had been, which is something we'd consider in the past, say like with a third party warehouse that was packing our orders for us, we were never able to relinquish that control because of our just quality assurance standards and, and, um, some mistrust between us and the foreign manufacturer and things like that. Um, but I almost feel like maybe we wouldn't have been able to keep up with the demand had it been in somebody else's hands. So sure. um, that you, control when, is when, expensive and yeah. resource heavy, but it it is a protection. I was going to sum it up, but you just did it more eloquently than I would have. That's perfect. Yes, exactly. When you have control, you might pay a little bit more for that control in either in time or in money or perhaps both, uh, but you have more control. And so yeah. you're able to, to to pivot easier. You're able to make adjustments uh, a lot easier probably than those fulfillment centers who are probably disrupted by their ability to quickly implement COVID pr- uh, procedures, safety, safety precautions. And you were able to make those probably o- overnight, same day, whatever it was to, to make it happen. So you mentioned uh, that those... Uh, direct-to-consumer sales were what kept you afloat through June. Have your online sales, have have they come back down to earth after taking off and going to the stratosphere those first few months in COVID? They've come back down to earth, but they're still far exceeding what our expectations were this year in terms of our, you know, revenue projections. So that's something that's um, pretty exciting because we hope to just continue to build on that. Now, during peak COVID, there were opportunities that now aren't available, like the cost of um, digital ads were so low when COVID was hitting because all these bigger companies were pulling back their ads. They were so scared. And we saw that ads were low. So it was actually our first time putting out digital ads or marketing on social media and things like that. So those were things that we took advantage of um, during the peak of COVID that now, to be honest, we just can't afford or don't have budgeted for. Um, right. Because um, now everybody's doing that. Everybody's doing it again. The, the opposite, um, opposite mm-hmm. swing. Yeah. Yeah. And so they have come back down, for instance, during the peak of COVID, um, searches for tahini on Amazon reached an unheard of height. I mean, it was in like the tens of thousands and now they're back down still higher than where they were in 2019, but they're back down to a much more manageable number. And that's directly correlated to our sales on Amazon. They were super high and now they're much, you know, much lower than what they were. The other thing that's been interesting is that our food service sales have always been balanced by our consumer sales. And what we found was that when restaurants were shut down, obviously people were cooking more. 
But now that restaurants have been open more, it's been more balanced. So as our food service sales have come up, our you know direct to consumer sales have evened out. Um, and I think that that's really a great example of the human behavior of when you're eating out, you're not cooking. And when you're cooking, you're not eating out. And so it's just been interesting to experience that on a micro level when it has to do with just tahini. Sure. Yeah. The, the micro level for just a, a, a single type of product, but a very uh, macro representation of the, the human c- consumer experience. Right. Yeah. So would you say that your ratios of, or your, your, um, revenue allocation by category has returned to its pre COVID levels now? Are you still, has food service come back to that 65% or is it, is it still much heavier, uh, more weighted towards direct to consumer? It's practically completely flopped. So our consumer sales, both retail and online, are about 65%, and our food service sales are about 35%. Wow. And with those numbers, you are still projecting to meet those uh, your original 2020 revenue expectations. That's incredible. Yes, we are. Um, And it's really a testament to the volume that's happening online, especially or what had happened on Amazon, especially during the peak of it. So um, yes, we're still projecting, although um, if October is any indication, we're starting to notice that we're like, you know, every month leading up to it, you realize you might have lost a little bit here, a little bit there. And so we'll see how these this last quarter shakes out to see if we if we truly hit it or if we come a little short. Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens because I know on the out here in California, we have been doing um, the I just heard a great term. They're called streeteries is the term. And that is basically when uh, restaurants have been allowed by the city to build these semi-permanent expansions over the restaurant, which are often just wood benches that look like they went to Home Depot and built them over the course of the weekend and sort of coordinate it off and basically take over what was parking spot, what were parking spots and make it uh, an expansion of outdoor eating. Well, that's great here in San Diego where you can do that 365. That's not really a viable option. I don't think people want to be eating outside in Philadelphia in, in January. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see what happens with food service. If as we're recording this interview, uh, we are, definitely trending nationally in the absolute wrong direction uh, from a new co- or a daily new um, uh, uh, COVID standpoint. The number of, of cases uh, were back into the 50,000s after being down at one point towards the, the high 30,000s. Absolutely. You know, but one of the things is also that restaurants have now had this time to refine and execute more, more takeout processes. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hoping is that those restaurants that were able to pivot their menus or their, um, you know, marketing capabilities can hopefully withstand huge losses by focusing on takeout uh, during the colder months. I think the initial um, excitement about cooking so much is gone. Like it's not coming back, even though I think COVID numbers could get worse and quarantines could get more strict. I still don't think people want to cook as much as they did in April and May. And I think that I hope 
um, for the sake of our partners and our restaurants and uh, people's well-being that they that they continue to feel comfortable ordering takeout because some of the initial you know um, I think trepidation about takeout was could COVID be transferred through takeout and now we know absolutely not that's not how it's transferred and so hopefully that you know um, keeps many of our restaurant partners going uh, through the winter but we are we have yet to see I think the results of colder weather and less outdoor seating yeah I was as a small business uh, fanboy really hoping that COVID would be done obviously you know for the the human uh, toll like goes without saying but for small businesses and in especially those in the food space I think that the the coming winter months are going to be pretty brutal and I've seen some very doom and gloom forecasts so I, I'm hoping that you're right and that people are making adjustments to to stay. I think that no matter what adjustments are made, there will be an onslaught of unfortunate business closures coming in the winter. But uh, ho- hopefully it's it's less than than I would anticipate. It's really just an exaggerated reality of CPG in general, which is I think the the successful CPG companies are the ones that could just withstand the tumultuous nature of a Mm -hmm. startup business. You know, it's almost like, who can you beat out from your competition? um, Whereas they can't withstand so much time or so much of a roller coaster. It's like a breath holding competition. Exactly. It really is. And and COVID, I think what it's done has just um, aggravated or almost magnified the realities of life like or the realities of business just tenfold right and so now it's just even faster if you were racing somebody for two years now you're racing somebody for six months and can that other competitive or competitor survive those six months um and you know perhaps we'll see a thinning of the herd as it comes to the cpg space yeah yeah, the the terms we've used on this show are COVID winners and COVID losers, mm. and and it's a little harsh, and not everyone fits into those buckets. But basically, it's almost like you your your COVID thrivers and your COVID survivors, and you know you have your your zooms of the world, not zooms, zooms, mm. which are seeing their stock price go up five hundred percent in a matter of months, and then you're seeing your carnival cruises who are just crying out desperately for more government assistance. We did have one customer reach out and say that they were Googling Zoom, but mis- accidentally wrote Zoom, which does not happen very often. Most people accidentally write Zoom instead of Zoom. And he said the products look so good, he decided to buy them. So there was one plus of uh, having, <laughs> having that mistake. That is really funny. It was awesome. So before we kind of move to to wrap things up in the in the post COVID set, I just want to talk um, because one of the goals of this show is to sort of humanize the experience of of small business ownership broadly and then specific to to COVID. How was your um, state of mind, your emotional well being, et cetera? especially in those first couple months, you know, when, when you went from Friday, we're staying business or, you know, business as usual to just over the weekend. Oh gosh, things have changed drastically, you know, March 13th, 14th, 15th, you know, just a, a handful of days there closing over the weekend. 
how, what was that like for you from an emotional standpoint? Emotionally, you know, I think it was easier to stomach because it wasn't just us. So I almost like could compartmentalize like, what does this mean to Zoom? Because it was just happening across the board. I was, I was, I was more disturbed and upset by like, what does this mean for everybody? I mean, the health of my family and friends, you know, um, our restaurant partners were clearly going to be more impacted than say me as a vendor. And so I was able to just focus on, well, how can I help or, or what can we do to support these other people that honestly have it worse? I mean, we spent a lot of our time in those first couple months, just focusing on what uh, relief kitchens can we donate tahini to across the country to support, you know, restaurant workers that had been furloughed. And so we were able to kind of translate that, that unknown and that, um, I guess, initial anxiety into just like, what can we do and, and how can we reach out? And that's what really helped me, um, you know, overcome those first few months. The other thing is that, you know, having um, partners, especially having partners that are sisters, you it, we just very naturally carry each other's weight. Like this was much harder, for instance, for my oldest sister, Shelby, who had just had her third child, third son, nonetheless, um, in December. And she was now home with three kids, you know, three boys under five. And so, you know, it was much harder for her. And so I was the one able to be strong and, you know, carry the company through. Whereas now that, you know, Shelby's kids are back in school and things are a little bit more manageable, it's the stress of how is this year going to fin finish out that I'm a little bit more down and Shelby is now carrying the weight. And so that is just one of the benefits of having partners. You know, I really feel for single founders. Like I don't know how somebody that has to shoulder that burden by themselves does it, especially if they're leading a team or even doing it alone. That to me seems so scary. So having my sisters, having that family around me um, made it a lot more manageable. Um, and at the end of the day, like one of our other values is, is family. And that's the same for all of our employees. You know, we just had to focus on what is the best thing for our employees and for their families. For instance, our warehouse coordinator had two young boys at home. So we knew that he couldn't be in any more than 20 hours a week either. And so just by, you know, maintaining those values and keeping everything in perspective, I think it was easy to say, we'll do what we can do and whatever happens will happen. You know, we, we can't control everything. That is such a great answer. Do you feel like you always felt that way where you're just going to take each day as it comes, you're going to do what you can, you're going to stay metered, you're going to lean on family, or were there ever any moments of, oh my God, everyone is canceling their orders, this is the end? No, you know what, the com it's been so hard throughout that I think if you didn't accept the fact that it is what it is and, and everything in time, that we probably would have given this up a long time ago. You know, there were times when, especially initially, when everybody that I tried to sell tahini to would say no, right? Like if I would have just shouldered that and accepted all the no's, then we would have closed the doors also a couple years into the business. And so that's just always been my philosophy is that um, you can only control what you can control. You can only try as hard as you can try. And if it's not the right time, then it's not the right time. And when it is the right time, things will work itself out. I mean, we had the security to be able to do that because my husband had an income, right? Like my entire livelihood did not depend on this company making it right now. Um, so that's definitely a security and, 
and a, and a privilege. That's something that, um, that I really appreciate as a small business owner, because many others don't have that. But if you do have it, then I think patience is really a virtue when it comes to entrepreneurship, because if you expect or need everything to happen immediately, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. Especially those first couple of years, you are going to, it's going to be trial, trial by fire, basically. And you are going to learn, if nothing else, a, a whole dose of, of resilience. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and, and to build up that strength, I think is what can help you endure uh, throughout because the reality is like, as the business gets bigger, as our revenue gets higher, it's not any easier. It's actually just harder, you know, like growing from 500,000 to a million was way easier. We did that like in a year, no problem. Then once we hit this 2 million mark, it's been a grind to try to get it, you know, way, way past that. So um, it's an, I, I, the beginning stages of entrepreneurship are so exciting because they're, no mistake is, is devastating, right? No mistake is going to really put you under. And that's why I really felt for those businesses that were just starting around COVID, like only a year old or two, even just two years old. I mean, you don't have enough of a foundation to be able to withstand how challenging and how tumultuous this pandemic has been. Um, the fact that we had six years behind us really helped us to navigate it. Yeah. And how long lasting it's going to be, because I think the one of the things that we've talked about on the show has kind of been a recurring theme is the uncertainty surrounding it. And I, I spoke earlier about how when we first started the um, the post covid segment, that seemed like something that was right around the corner. And now the post covid segment is really just about the adjustments that you are making and how your business will be changed forever moving forward without a real specific timeline to that because here we are in you know this this episode will be coming out in, in november and what is realistic i don't know uh maybe you know june of next year december of next year 2022 like when are we really all going to be traveling with no worries does that I have no idea that that is a very rhetorical question. But with that, let's go ahead and move into that post COVID segment. And let's talk about the adjustments that you are making the lessons that you have learned through this whole experience and what you will be taking with you moving forward, uh, you know, now and always. You know, the adjustments, it's interesting. We talked about how COVID accelerated so much. A goal of ours throughout 2020 and, and beyond was to expand our consumer sales. And so COVID accelerated that for us. I mean, our velocity online was stronger and still is stronger than ever. Our velocity in grocery stores grew astronomically over this past year. And so we're really taking that and, and, and working to continue to advocate for why tahini is such a beneficial ingredient to have in people's pantries and why retailers and even other online stores and things like that um, should see benefit in, you know, adding a tahini skew to their line. Whereas in the past they said, why tahini? You know, it doesn't even sell that much now. Why would we add another product in? Um, and so we're really excited to be able to take the momentum and the things, the new processes that we've learned in terms of how much it takes to be able to fulfill and to keep inventory and stock and these levels and to be able to continue that. Now, as it comes to food service, I mean, 
Um, another benefit has been that we haven't had to travel, right? In the past, um, myself or a salesperson would travel to markets all across the country and sleep over for a couple nights and visit all of our restaurant partners or do distributor shows that cost $5,000 for literally no reason. Um, and now we don't have to do those things. And so I think we're really excited to be able to, we're just about to set our budget for 2021 to look at where we can save, right? Where we don't need to spend the money that we used to have to allocate towards and how we can use those resources um, into our consumer sales growth. Um, so I'm most excited about that. I'm I, most excited about not going to distributor shows anymore. I was just going to say that you, you keep on beating me to the punch here. Yes, I think that uh, you are not alone. And I'll say, I'm, I'm going to lump me into that. You and I are not alone in our feeling that, maybe foregoing some of those shows is is uh is one silver lining out of this because they are a, they're a money drain they're a time drain and i think that oftentimes they're they're not the there's not a positive roi coming out of those it's more about almost like showing off that hey we're here yep the which i understand when a brand reaches a certain point you almost have to play the game you know you need to say we're here we're stable we're seeing you and that's when i think those shows are beneficial when you have 20 buyers of like national chains that you can see in one day right spending ten thousand dollars to be in new york for three days instead of having to go to california or chicago or wherever it is over a course of an entire year i see the benefit of but for a small brand like zoom i mean no buyer, you know, is going to happen upon our company right. at a national or like natural show or something like that, which is why we've never done them. It just was not the right um, mode for us. And now we can keep putting it off even longer. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, on the, as we wrap things up here and uh, to, to kind of follow up on the, uh, the improvement of direct to, uh, to consumer sales and how that was a goal of yours and how now it's actually happening. How can our uh, listeners get their hands on, on some Zoom tahini? So you can always purchase our products off of our website, zoomfoods.com. It's also available on Amazon um, through Fulfilled by Amazon, so FBA and Prime for those of you that um, would like it a little bit maybe faster or without a small shipping charge attached to it. Um, we're sold with other great e-commerce platforms like nuts.com, um, Milk Street, uh, which is an awesome uh, food platform now uh, through Chris Kimball. And we are in about 450 or so stores, mostly between DC and New York, um, and a couple specialty stores across the, the market. We just opened up Erewhon, which we're really excited about in LA. So if you have any LA listeners, we'd love your support in the Erewhon stores. Yes, think of Erewhon as a three location um, version of what Whole Foods thinks it is, but e even uh, more, but more chic. Love it. I'll take that any day. And if people aren't familiar with uh, tahini, or and they they're looking for maybe some some suggestions on how to utilize it, would you have any sort of source for those types of recipes or suggestions? Maybe. Oh, absolutely. We have tons of recipes on our website. 
And I'm looking around because of course I don't have one near me, but our cookbook is out and in the flesh. So the tahini table has over a hundred recipes for using tahini for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and any snack or meal in between, including desserts. Um, and they are delicious recipes and a way that you can incorporate the health benefits of tahini, which um, has a great source of protein, calcium, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, B vitamins. I mean, sesame seeds are really one of these super seeds um, in a variety of ways. So uh, we hope that if you have tahini at home and are looking for ways to use it um, or are looking for a great holiday gift this year, the tahini table should definitely be on your list. It's available wherever books are sold including our website, zoomfoods.com. Zoomfoods, that's S-O-O-M foods.com. All right, Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait to have you on and hear about how your direct-to-consumers uh, sales have stabilized at these uh, at these new peaks and, and are continuing to work hand-in-hand -hand with a resurgence, hopefully, post-COVID of food service, and that'll help you way exceed your uh, 2020 expect revenue expectations and continue on with that uh, that hopeful 30% growth number that, that uh, you and I had discussed earlier. So Thank thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you to my guest, Amy Zittelman, co-founder and CEO of Soom Foods. Try her delicious and highest quality tahini at sumfoods.com. That's S-O-O-M foods.com. Maybe even pick up a copy of her recipe book, The Tahini Table, which has 100 recipes for tahini. I'm sure you have at least one person in your life who would love that book, so buy the book and support an awesome small business. Speaking of which, time now for my unsponsor, aka a free surprise shout out to a small business run by awesome people producing awesome products. Today's show was not brought to you by Almi Apparel. Almi is an acronym for a little more invincible, fitting as they make your life a little better with cozy and versatile dress socks that double as office and gym socks. Check them out at almiapparel.com. Check out smallbizgoneviral.com to learn more about our guests, get some ideas for gift giving this season, and of course, submit recommendations for small businesses either to interview or to unsponsor. Thank you to Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for this music that you're listening to right now, Worldometer, NPR, Robinhood Snack, and Morning Brew, and Statista Daily News emails. Someday this will all be over, and that day might come a little sooner if we all just wear masks and avoid unnecessary group gatherings. Hint, Thanksgiving right around the corner, food for thought. From an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours, this is Small Biz Gone Viral, and I'm Grant LeBeau. Seriously though, I am. And we're back with a quick bonus segment. It's our lightning round where we ask just a couple of quick questions about kind of entrepreneurship conceptually. So we start with what is your least favorite question to receive about your business at maybe a cocktail party? Oh God, if somebody asked me this at a cocktail party, I'd want to punch them in the face. But <laughs> my least favorite question about my business is whether we're profitable or not. And that's because I think a lot of people misunderstand the idea of revenue versus profits, um, and especially how CPG products have very low margins. 
Number two, what is your least favorite part about entrepreneurship, about being the boss? My least favorite part about entrepreneurship is wondering if there's one more thing I can do or one more resource that I can provide to my team to make their lives better. Um, and it's this nagging feeling that kind of encompasses me throughout the day. And of, of course, uh, do you want to add anything on to that about maybe consistency of income? Oh, yeah. I hate not making a lot of money or not having a high salary. Um, but it's something that I aspire to one day. I can't wait to be a consultant one day and just tell people what to do, make a lot of money and not actually have to do it myself. And, and not have to worry about margins. Right. And because uh, this show is supposed to end on sort of an up note uh, of some semblance of hope for the future, what is uh, what are the biggest upsides of entrepreneurship to you? The biggest upsides are creating a business that can employ people in a good business um, with a strong company culture and a group that they want to be a part of. Um, and I love the, at least the benefit is tax write-offs, right? If we're not profitable, it, at least we can just write it off. Exactly. It's a, it's a write-off, David. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Amy. Thank you.